Hello and welcome to the Rice Historical Review podcast. My name is Eddie Plout. I'm the podcast director and producer. And today we have Eliza Martin, Baker Sr., and a honors history candidate, much like Catherine Pickerel and Darren Pamita before her. And today she's going to be talking to us about her paper and the research that she's done and the work that she's put in so far. Eliza, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you. I know you've had a really busy time. Were you able to get some rest during the midterm recess or is it still like busy, busy? It's still pretty busy, but I watched the OU Texas game, so it was that was a it's good, good, it's a a good, good moment. A, exactly, right? We're back. Yeah, We're I finally know. back. It feels Top good. ten. <laughs> so uh, just to start off, can you give our listeners kind of a brief overview of your general areas of interest in history? Where generally across your studies at Rice especially have you really focused in on? Where have most of your insights, especially leading into your paper, really been? So at, at Rice, I I mean I study history and political science and I minor in politics, law and social thought. And originally, I was more interested in the political science aspect of the major, kind of the the data and the phenomenon that we see behind politics. But I took um, Asia Polnitz's pre-modern political thought last year and just fell in love with political theory, political thought. And I realized that that kind of began with my freshman year when I took um, a FWIS that focused on Rousseau that was taught by Zamito. Um, and I was just... I realized that everything that I loved about political science was the political theory aspect. And I was particularly interested because all of the political theory that we read at Rice is really focused on European political thought. And I'm passionate about Latin America. Uh, most of the coursework I've done is in Latin America, focuses on revolutions, the role of women in revolutions. And so I was like, why not try to see what's out there in regards to Latin American political thought and how it interacts with revolutions and women. And so that's kind of how I stumbled upon my interest in history. And Dr. Monomai Lopez Alonso, who's my thesis advisor, has been instrumental in helping me navigate that because there really aren't any courses at Rice that touch on that. And it's sort of been an independent study within my own history and you know I spend free time reading about this stuff which makes me a little bit of a nerd but <laughs> it's okay <laughs> yeah that's really cool um I, I I can speak from my own experience as well that there isn't while my own thesis is largely based on Dr. Balabanalar's South history of South Asia there's not really a, a specific focus on like my topic of interest. So I can imagine for you, especially working with, when you get that really almost intimate relationship with your advisor, where they really, they're the only person who really understands what you're talking about. It is, it can be both stressful, but it is, it is special in its own way. Um, So it's a good transition into your actual topic for your thesis. Can you give our listeners like a a brief overview of what your uh, paper will generally be about? I'm looking at a transition period in post-French uh, occupation of Mexico and post the Reform Wars, so essentially 1867-ish, until the Revolution of 1910. So during this 50-year period, you had this complete, almost prior to the Revolution of 1910, which is seen as the quintessential, I guess, Mexican Revolution, you had a complete change in Mexican society and the politics, the economy. And it's an area that doesn't get a lot of study in Mexico. So most of the work that's being produced is on the revolution and then in like the consolidation of power with the the PRI, which is the party that was ruled for, you know, 70, 70 years, 90 mm-hmm. years. And so I am focusing on the transformation of political thought that occurred during that time period because it was eventually ingrained in the 1917 Constitution, which is the Constitution that obviously is still um, intact today. 
And you had, as you were having this complete transformation of Mexican society, you were having these political thinkers who were trying to figure out how do we move these changes into and codify them into law, codify them into into society, essentially, and for the future. And so you have these two intense sides that the reform wars, which focused on conservative thinkers, which were people who advocated for the role of the church, um, traditional sort of roles in society, you know, women not in the public sphere. And then you had this liberal thinking that was like the man should be the body of, of, of thought and he shouldn't be relegated by corporations or foreign powers. That was a big thing in Mexico was this anti-American, anti-any and European involvement after the French, the French involvement. And so it's this clash of thinking. It's a clash of thought. And you have an interesting emergence in the question of a woman um, because for so long she had been ruled by women or she had been uh, the women had been ruled by, you know, men, um, laws, the church especially. And so it's this interesting sort of question that pops up in the thinking and Mm -hmm. what is the role of women? What are the role of indigenous individuals? And so that's broadly I'm looking at the nicer way to put it is I'm looking at the transformation of Mexican liberalism in late 19th century Mexico. So it's like really a true moment, like a a political primordial soup, basically, in Mexico, where there is a real transition period. And there's uh, like a lot of modernization that goes on, but a lot of figuring out politically of like what of identity almost. And it's like, I can imagine the, um, the development of, like you said, like anti-American, anti-foreign power identity, like clashing with like traditional, more like religiously rooted identity. And then meeting what I imagine what your argument probably relates to is this idea of like a fledgling Mexican liberalism. I mean, you're essentially building the idea of Mexico at this time. So it's a question of what is the identity of Mexico at and what, what should the identity of Mexico be moving forward? And you get an answer in the 1917 Constitution, but it's a question of where did that answer come from? How did it, how was it, you know, put into words? And, and what are, how does it affect the rest of Mexico? Um, so it really, it, it is, in my opinion, one of the most pivotal moments in, in Latin American history, not to mention American history as well. So it's, it's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Do you have uh, a sense yet of what sort of argument specifically you'll try and make about this period? So I'm going to be arguing essentially in my thesis that during this transformational period of Mexican liberalism, the question of the role of women in the public sphere arises. And women were viewed predominantly in Mexican liberalism for three main purposes. Um, and that defined the way that women were put in, I guess, ingrained in the in the Constitution. Um, so I'm arguing that women's social utility um, as mothers and raising the raising their children um, was one such issue that Mexican liberalism focuses on. Um, women's in the labor economy because you have this idea that women, you know, no one should be ruled by corporations, and women sort of epitomize that because most of the work, um, I mean, all of the work essentially is that women were involved in the day-to-day economy, but in an unofficial capacity as market vendors, um, you know, sold penny stocks and stuff like that. And then I'm also looking at women and their utility as sexual individuals. So I'm also looking at how the state 
runs up against an issue of the state has this idea of what the pinnacle Mexican woman should be. She should be virtuous. Um, she should have a social utility as a mother. But what happens when you have women who are engaged in prostitution? And the state views and talks about women in two very distinct ways. So you have women who are these, they, they call them mujeres clandestinas, clandestine women. And they Essentially, the state acknowledges that they have a function in the economy, that they are autonomous individuals, and the state doesn't do that with the other women. And so it's a question of why do you have that split, and why is the state recognizing that women function autonomously in one sphere, but they don't function autonomously in, a, in another sphere? So that's those are the three main issues that I'm looking at, is labor, social utility, and their sexual abilities, I guess. So the those two identities of the uh, like sort of the virtuous identity for like the proper Mexican woman that's one that is kept entirely distinct from the clandestine lady of the night basically mm-hmm. and that seems interesting is there any sort of secondary sources or like academia written about either corroborating these identities or the argument you're trying to make in general or are you on your own <laughs> forced to come up with argument and make decisions about the historiography like as you go that's been the the interesting sort of situation i've run into because when i decided to write about this i you know like everything in history i thought that there was already an entirely entire body of work and there wasn't and there isn't and charles hale who um was a historian at ucla i believe he's written a lot on mexican liberalism as it relates to the rights of individuals but an individual in mexico wasn't considered a woman Um, And so he has one chapter in his entire body of work that focuses on the rights of indigenous individuals. There's no mention of women at all. Um, A few books have been written about gender history, which I'm not writing gender history. I'm writing this history that I think should be viewed as political thought history, but also political thought obviously touches on gender and gender Mm -hmm. touches on political thought. Mm -hmm. But it's not overtly like a a gender theory piece. It's how women factor into Mexican political thought. And and I'm drawing that distinction in my discussion on the historiography because I think that by dividing the two up, you're inherently overlooking the, the role that women play in the public sphere, which I think is, you know, women didn't have a huge presence in the public sphere, but there are when I was in Mexico City this summer, there were books and books of laws that taught, touched on what women could do and couldn't do and what their parameters were in society. And so essentially I've had to navigate. There is no historiography and mm-hmm. I've had to kind of f- essentially I'm just using primary sources, which is a little bit daunting. There's a few pieces of work that are chapters that focus on prostitution and a lot of it is the public health behind prostitution, but there's not much that touches on the role of women in this division, I guess, between like clandestine woman and the, the independent woman who's a prostitute and then the, the virtuous woman. So it's been a it's been a difficult process in that regard because I've never started from zero, I guess, mm-hmm. like this before. I, I am making my own argument and there is no history of anyone else making an argument like that. So it's been interesting. So because really you're on, you're like left out in the woods like this on your own, what do the primary sources you're working with look like? I know that you doing a lot of Spanish source work is translating <laughs> sources as you go. Is that proving difficult? Is that something you've done before in your work at Rice? I never worked with this many sources in Spanish before. I had done some work in the past. I wrote a a seminar paper for Dr. Lopez Alonso's course on Mexican history last semester that touched on the American invasion of Mexico City in 1848 and had done 
basic source work for translation, but never, never in this capacity. I mean, I, I traveled to Mexico City this summer on a on a fellowship and for two months was working with sources in the the national reserves that were entirely in Spanish. And it I speak Spanish. I don't speak 19th century Spanish. And that was a really difficult I you know, I would go to the library every day and there's no computers and I would bring my huge Mex- my huge Spanish dictionary, Spanish to English dictionary, and sit by the sit in the stacks with all of these other professors and and try to navigate it. But the source work is largely divided into books that are published by political thinkers, but they're not really books. They're sort of pamphlets, I guess. And then legal books that talk about rulings, so how women, how the laws that are written should relate to women. And then the the largest body of work is the newspapers, because there's these daily newspapers that are printed um, that one is a conservative newspaper, another is a liberal newspaper, and they literally are the main political thinkers of the time are responding to each other back and forth in the newspapers. And so the Benson Collection at the University of Texas at Austin has all of the newspapers and the the, the Fondo Reservado in Mexico City does as well. And so I am starting to kind of work through all of those newspapers and it's difficult because I want to read every single newspaper and I want to you know, spend the time to really uncover all that they're talking about. But that would probably be like a PhD thesis. And I don't have, I don't have the time to do that. So I'm having to pick and choose which, which conversations and which arguments I'm kind of unfolding and thinking about. And I can imagine it only gets harder because of the lack of historiography, where it's like, you don't know what's the most important article, you'll you'll think, okay, maybe there's one, maybe like, a hair more important than the one I just read. There's a quote, one quote better than the one I just found. And you're chasing the rabbit basically um, ad nauseum until you've read 400 newspapers or whatever. And and Sylvia Arom, who does um, gender history at Brandeis University, she her bibliography and her arguments that she makes in, in her gender history were really important for my for finding legal discussions, which I spent a lot of my time reading this summer. And Charles Hale, who talks about Mexican liberalism as a whole, he has been really important on determining what Mexican liberalism is because it's very distinct than any other sort of liberalism. But yeah, there's not really a discussion on where do I find the sources that talk about women and where do I find the sources that talk about... And so it's it's a lot of kind of getting good at skimming mm-hmm. newspapers in another language. I can imagine there's a lot of like you're going through the legal document and you have to kind of interpret based on the law. It's like, oh, this is what they intend or think about women based on this law. Yeah. That seems tricky. That sounded really cool getting to do research in Mexico City on that fellowship. Through this course of research, as I, I remember Catherine and Darren both mentioning, especially in their primary source research, have you encountered any like major obstacles while going through this work? Have there been stumbling blocks for your argument? How has your paper really developed so far? So when I got the fellowship to go to Mexico City, I kind of naively was like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to find everything and it's all going to be great. And then the first roadblock I ran into was when you're doing research in a country that is very Mexico is a very bureaucratic country and you have to go through 100 loops to get into, you know, you're, you're, you're in the national reserves of a library where there's documents that are precious. And so I completely understand why there's 100 loops to jump through, but it's much more difficult because um, it's still time consuming and it's time consuming it took me you know two weeks to get my accreditation to get into the library to even begin because I needed a letter from Dr. Lopez Alonso and she you know she 
didn't sign it on she signed it with just like her name and she had to actually have a signature on it and that alone took like (laughs) four days and then you know I I was trying to Spanish is not my first language and so I would be trying to argue with people and I'd be upset and I'd be like why can't I go in here why can't I do this and I was oftentimes found myself trying to struggle to to work through my emotions in another language and and not just you know, exploded yeah. somebody. Explode. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> and, and then it was hard because I had never done archival work before and I'm doing archival work in a language, my second language. And I showed up and thought naively that it would be like Fondren and there would just be stacks and I would get to kind of run through the stacks and be like, oh yeah, this book looks great. And this book looks great. Mm-hmm. And I was, did not get to do that. I used a paper catalog um, and kind of ran through the books that you know were related to my topic. And, um, luckily the librarians and I became good friends because I think they felt really bad for me because there were, you know, all of these professors who were, you know, geniuses and very confident in doing their own work. Like the and one American girl. Was, like, and <laughs> was naive. And I think they were just like, oh no, poor, poor girl. Um, and you know, I didn't know that you needed gloves. I'm an, I'm an idiot, but I didn't know you needed gloves or like a mask to read. And I should have known, right. You're working with ni- like really uh, old 150 year old text that's crumbling because it hadn't been preserved particularly well earlier. So they really were instrumental in helping me. They, you know, they would go back into the reserves and pull, pull books that they thought I could use. And so, um, they they became my friends in in a foreign city, and I had lunch with them every day, and they're they're really nice. Um, and so they really, you know, they they email me sometimes. They're like, we found this great book that we think you need to use. They're like, come back in December, and so um, we'll see if I, we'll see if I go back. But I was just consuming a ton of information because I needed to figure out what Mexican liberalism was to begin with, and then I was trying to figure out what people were saying what my own argument should be and so essentially this summer I just consumed information and just took all that I could in for the period of time that I was in Mexico City and then I came back and met with Dr. Lopez Alonso and was kind of like I have an idea now of what's being said what arguments are being made in relation to individual rights and I think I have an idea of what people think about women at the time and she kind of helped me hone my hone my argument and because I originally didn't want to focus on the labor economy issue of women there's just not documents that talk about. I mean, mm-hmm. it's an informal labor economy, so there's no registration of women. That's like um, an impossible thing to like keep track of. And that was and that was something that I realized was like there there are certain things that are impossible to find. And Dr. Lopez Alonso was like, well, you could go to you know Jalisco or Zacatecas, which are two states that had women who were at the helm of haciendas and stuff like that. But navigating those archives may just would take a also an infinite amount of time and you know if I had if I were doing a PhD or something I would I would have the time to do that but she encouraged me to kind of use the secondary sources that are gender history that talk about women in the labor market and kind of figure that out craft Mm -hmm. my own argument with that as opposed to like chasing some non-existent source or a source that you don't have yet and and what was another sort of realization I had mid Mexico City trip was I had expected that the sources would be written by women, which maybe that was just naive of me thinking <laughs> about American history. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm going to find all these great diaries and like all of the source work written by women. Nope. Um, you know, I found, I think, four or five books that had been written for women or about women. But most of it was just legal interpretation and this broad 
debate of individual rights. And so it is, it was very striking because I, you know, that quote that says for most of history, anonymous was a woman. And it was striking because I was literally searching for women and I found nothing. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like, if you want to be, and, and that was the same for indigenous rights as well. And it's kind of like, if you want to be a part of history, you have to write yourself into history. If you are, you know, a person of color or indigenous or someone who's not traditionally part of the historical narrative and so that was quite the realization mid 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 archives work it's very so, sobering almost, it, it yeah. was and it was a little bit I felt very naive before I went into it of like a hope of oh maybe Mexico will be you know this pinnacle of of women's rights <laughs> uh-huh. and women's liberty and you know women didn't get the right to vote until the 1950s but what was really interesting was that you know even as a Hispanic woman I you know, I grew up in America, and I think we have this notion that Latin American can sometimes be backwards for lack of... And in Mexico itself, much of the history of Mexico is fighting against that notion. Mm-hmm. And my studies here at Rice have been also in fighting that notion of being, like, you know, not this backward place and the champion of indigenous rights and the preservation of of history that fights against this European colonialism model. Mm-hmm. And... What was really interesting was that Mexico really was a place that that was a pinnacle of women's rights in a certain sense. Women could own property. Um, they could inherit property, which you don't find in the United States or in Europe. And when I was reading all these legal codes, it was striking because I felt like in the United States, there's very finite rules of women can and can't do this and women can and can't do this. And in Mexico, the legal codes were set up so that women had this they were things you could not do as a woman, but they were very broad and they weren't so absolute. And so you found women pushing. It's like difficult to enforce. Like there's yeah. like wiggle room. Which is, you know, a product of a emerging democracy or emerging, I can't even say democracy, an emerging government system. But you had this arena that women kind of were, were in, in the public sphere. And you found women, you found legal cases of women pushing against it and saying, okay, well, if I can argue in court on behalf of my husband who is capacitated or dead, why can't I argue on behalf of myself? And you found that in the legal arguments. So you see, saw women responding almost to mm-hmm. to it. I imagine that gives you a good sense then of like where there is lacking in source work or even like diaries or writing by, of women writing themselves into history. Their work in legal codes is, is sort of a de facto example of that, yeah. right? Of where they're, they get to write themselves into how they represent themselves mm-hmm. or how they're seen before the law. It's like and it's, it's a lot more it. it's a lot more subtle, but it was really powerful because I almost felt like that is what women have to do a lot is the subtle sort of pushing against the status quo and saying and you, and then you see it. You see a change especially in history. You see a change 10 years later when a woman wins a legal case that she's arguing on behalf of herself. And so that was a really cool experience, I guess, was witnessing that and tracking down those threads of thought and and being able to build an argument based off of that. But I think that my thesis is also trying to dispel that notion of women in Latin America and women in the global South are, you know, at the bottom of the, the, the they don't have any rights. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, women had a lot more, women in Mexico had a lot more rights than women in the United States did. Yeah, they didn't get the right to vote until 1950, but, you know, women got the right to vote here in 1920. Like, you know, it's and that isn't the only right that and the that relative matters, status, right? is, like, relative status is important yeah. too. Like, there's an unquantifiable portion to it that like stands kind of outside the law, a cultural component to it that and I that's, imagine that you're looking at. And that is what I'm looking at. And that's been hard. It's hard to look at something that isn't there in text. And so it's been hard to. It, it has been challenging to build 
a narrative based off of changes that you see that aren't necessarily written down, I guess, if mm-hmm. that makes any sense. But So just to wrap up, I'm going to ask you what I asked both Catherine and Darren, and they both gave me similar answers to this, is this idea of like the paper itself. Uh, obviously, at Rice, you, as a Rice history major and even as a political science major, I'm sure you've written seminar papers before. You know what it's like to embark on a, a, a long-ish undergraduate paper, but you've never really done something like this before. It's not, it's not nothing with that this much attachment to like an individual topic, to one argument you're making the whole year. How has that been for you? Uh, is, it, is it a fundamentally different sort of like intellectual experience? Is it is it especially stimulating? Do you feel a particular attachment to this argument in a way you've never felt to anything you've written before? Or is it sort of a nose to the grindstone, I'm just going to finish this and turn this out? Or does it? Or does the paper mean a lot more than that to you? No, the paper definitely means a lot, <laughs> a lot more than that. And <laughs> yeah. I can imagine that everyone who came before me has also said that. Mm-hmm. But because you have so much freedom in choosing what you want to write about, it's sort of this culmination of of your four years of work and what intellectually stimulates you. And and at Rice, because history is such a, I mean, so so expansive, and you know, everyone in our honors thesis class is writing about something completely different. Mm-hmm. And when I sit down at dinner, I can't talk about this for forty five minutes with people because they're like, "You're crazy. This is like, why are they you writing not, this?" They could not care less. And basically. and and yeah. a little, you know, a lot of people are. I'll find some gem or something, and I'll come to dinner, and I'll be super excited, and everyone will be like, "What's wrong with you?" Like, okay, <laughs> definitely has happened to me ca- talking to my mom about this or something. Yeah. Like, they just don't. They don't understand. I mean, my time in Mexico City this summer was transformative, and you know, personally and in an academic setting. But you know, I came back and I was like. I love what I'm writing about and I love, you know, no one else has really written about this. And that was a really cool feeling of like, I'm sort of uncovering in a certain way. I'm paying homage to like my past and my family's past and trying to write something that hopefully, you know, if someone, I'm, I'm, I'm not naive enough to think that a ton of people are going to read my thesis, but you know, that this is something that we shouldn't just, overlook anymore that it's not it's something worth... that can be forgotten yeah. it's something that is like and, and i imagine darren said the same thing it's like there's an endearing quality especially with archival work where it's, it's nobody has really looked at these records the way i will look at them and tell the important story that needs to be told the way i'm gonna tell it really ever again or maybe i i'm the thing that causes someone to look into this or write a phd about this and it feels it feels almost mystical in the sense that you are sitting down with your own experiences that have, you know, you are a product of of your own history and your own experiences. And you're sitting down with these texts that, I mean, what I love about history is you sit down and you're touching someone, someone else's writing that was transformed by their own history and their own past. And it it's just that no one else can ever, we're our own distinct individuals and with our own histories and our own past. And we're bringing to the table that and we're mixing in all of this other history and it's creates this product that's entirely new and and I I love it and I don't think that I, I I've not been great about my other homework and doing <laughs> everything else because you know, I'm really busy for uh, uh, other reasons but I you know I I look forward to spending the hours reading and spending the hours writing and I haven't been doing as much as I probably should be doing but I'm looking forward to making a product of something that that I don't know if I'll ever really let go of. And I, you know, I know that when I go to Mexico City again, I will go, I will show up at the Fondo Reservado and, <laughs> you know, 
meet my friends and and I you know even if I'm even if this is in five years and I've already written and turned in my thesis hopefully I will still show up there and I will still be just floored by what I'm reading and what I'm seeing and so that it, it has been transformative already and haven't even written written that much yet so well we're fun. excited to see what you do right thank you so much for coming on the show Eliza that's going to be it from us if you want to check out the Rice Historical Review go to the ricehistoricalreview.org you can check out our SoundCloud and listen to other podcasts by other honors history candidates hopefully we'll have my own podcast discussion and the discussion of other members of the class up there soon if you want to check us out on iTunes we are now uh, have our podcast up on iTunes thank you all so much <laughs> <laughs>